You are listening to Radio Maria Canada. We now present Your Life is Worth Living, hosted by Al Smith. Welcome to this week's edition of Your Life is Worth Living, Reflections from the Venerable Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen. For over 50 years, Archbishop Sheen captivated audiences on both radio and television. Millions tuned in each week to hear his messages of hope and encouragement. On this week's broadcast, we will share a few of those reflections with you. And so we'd encourage you to sit back and relax and enjoy one of the greatest communicators of our time, the Venerable Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen. Hello, Radio Maria family, and welcome to another edition of Your Life is Worth Living. I'm your host, Al Smith, and I want to thank you for joining me for a little bit of time to learn our faith together and to be educated by a very wise and holy man, which is the Venerable Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen. Got a little bit of a summer cold, uh, winter cold, some type of seasonal cold today. It just, uh, if my voice sounds a little deeper, it is because of those um, little bugs that fly through the air that you pick up from time to time. So I know the good Lord will see me through this little cold, but... Um, Again, I pray for everyone who's uh, under the weather this time of year. So anyway, uh, so today's lessons will be on, of course, the uh, catechism lesson on the Mass. It's lesson number 30 in our 50-lesson series with Bishop Sheen. And he's going to begin our program with uh, a reflection he gave on his television series, Life is Worth Living, and it's entitled The Infinity of Littleness. And uh, I love that um, analogy of littleness, uh, becoming little, and uh, it's uh, something to ponder. I think uh, the great saints knew how to become little. Uh, So anyway, I will let Bishop Sheen kind of unpackage that for us. Uh, But let's begin, as we always do, with prayer. And so in the name of the Father, and the Son, the Holy Spirit, Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Our Lady, Seat of Wisdom, pray for us. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please enjoy this reflection now, entitled, The Infinity of Littleness. Friends, no old people ever enter the kingdom of heaven. Now please do not be discouraged by those of you who Do not use palm olive soap. Because here I'm speaking not of physical age, but rather of mental age. I mean those who are mentally old never enter the kingdom of heaven. Age is not really a question of years. It's the climate of the soul. Our divine Lord said, unless you become as a little child, you can't enter the kingdom of heaven. And if it please you then tonight, we will talk about littleness and childlikeness and humility. First of all, a law in the physical order. 
order to see anything big, one must always be physically little. That is one of the reasons why a child's world is always so immense. I believe to every boy his father is the biggest man in all the world, and his uncle that is standing alongside of a window is taller than the oak tree that is beyond. Every child loves the story of Jack and the Beanstalk, and to him, beanstalks actually tower to the skies, and giants are always the creations of humidity. A little boy can put himself on a broomstick, and in his imagination, it isn't long until he's clinging to the whistling mane of every wind, riding the rough savannas of the blue. And every little girl finds a doll very big, finds it a child, simply because she's little, and all the great maternal instincts come out of her. Boy, will we see for Christmas some tin soldiers. They're only about three inches high. He puts them on the carpet, lines them up in battle array, and soon he can hear the rat-a-tat of machine guns. He can smell the smoke of battle, hear its din. The red of the carpet becomes the the blood of the battlefield, as poppy fields are turned into veritable, as seldom as a blood. It's a real war, until he becomes a man. And then, then he sweeps away all of his little tin soldiers and all of his childhood fancies and puts them up into the attic and the world becomes small. When he was a boy, just to walk a mile away from home was to be in another world. Because he was physically little, everything else was big. What does it mean to be a child? To be a child means to live in a nutshell. You count yourself the king of infinite space. It means to be able to nuzzle yourself in the moon. To turn pumpkins into coaches. Mice into horses. It means also to be able to sit in the lap of Mother Nature and twine her presses a thousand willful ways to see in which fashion she will look the most beautiful. That's what it means to be a child. Now let's take that law and apply it to adults. To see any great big truth, one must be psychologically little. That is to say, one must be humble. Now let me illustrate. Uh, if the ego, the ego being the self, if the ego expands itself to the infinite, that's the mathematical symbol of infinity, then what is the consequence? In other words, if the ego thinks it knows everything, then you have the consequence that nothing is bigger than self. Now suppose the ego does not think very much of itself and reduces itself to zero. Then what is the consequence? Then everything is bigger than self. Then the world begins to be interesting. In other words, in order to discover truth and goodness and justice and divinity itself, one must be very humble and never proud. If a box is filled 
with salt, it cannot be filled with pepper. And if we are filled with our own importance, then we can never be filled with anything outside of ourselves. I believe that if a man thinks he knows everything, then God cannot teach him anything. One of the great virtues is the virtue of docility. And docility means teachableness, to be able to be taught something. But if a man is proud of all that he knows and thinks he has knowledge within himself, well then, there's no truth beyond him, there's not even any love beyond him. And this, uh, this expansion of self into infinity is certainly not the way of science. Ever notice how, how very calm and passive a scientist is before nature? He just sits, sits and looks at nature, and he awaits nature until nature tells him her laws. He does not say, I know the laws of nature, and I'm going to impose my laws upon nature. In a specificity, he waits for the revelation. Beautiful symbol and analogy, incidentally, of the way man ought to be before God. As he just waits for God's will to reveal itself, it will come. He will learn. Feed as ex audito. Faith comes from hearing. It means also it comes from being a good listener. Not thinking that one has all truth within oneself. It's not the source of all law. Here's another illustration. I, I must learn sometime. I'm, I haven't started practicing yet. Learn how to draw men. But I will always tell you what I am drawing. I am now going to draw the sun. This is the sun. These are rays of the sun. Here is a man. See, that's my usual man. That's the only man that I can draw. Now, the man is going in this direction. He's going away from the sun. What happens? There's a shadow. of himself. You see, I gave him a big head. The shadow's in front of him, and after a while, that shadow begins to be a kind of a fantasy. He thinks that's the way he really is. As long as the light is behind him, and as long as men are walking away from divine truth and divine light, they create psychological fantasies. They believe themselves different than they are. And if the sun is ahead of them, then the fantasies fall behind. But the real position, of course, is to have the light right above you. Then there's no fantasy that you have to, that you have behind dragging you. It's a complete identification of light in oneself. So the condition, therefore, of discovering truth is to be humble, and the condition of discovering goodness is to be humble. That is to say, one must admit that one is not a saint, but after all, there's room for improvement. And God can teach me something, and maybe His grace can come to my aid. What then is this virtue of humility? Well, the virtue of humility is the virtue that 
tells us the truth about ourselves and makes us love our neighbor. First of all, it tells us the truth about ourselves so we never exaggerate ourselves. And it also tells us the truth about our neighbor also in the sense that we are not exaggerating, underestimating ourselves or exaggerating ourselves. It might be well possibly to give you a few examples in forms of, of pride. I want you to notice how quickly our angel uh, is working cleaning backboards. You know, the reason is every angel lives in mortal dread of being knocked back to a cherub. Now, here are some forms, some forms of pride. One of the forms of pride is vanity. Another is, is self-criticism. I mean, criticism of others, a critical spirit, a spirit of criticism. First of all, vanity. Why is it that beggars always use tin cups? It's because they appeal to the vanity of the giver. He likes to hear the clink of the coin in the cup. And in churches, we always use flush bottom collection baskets because people are supposed to be flush, so we use the flush. But at any rate, there's not supposed to be any pride. Then take, for example, there can be, you know, pious fraud. There can be people who boast of the fact that they are, are very pious. I once heard a very interesting story about Father Vaughan. Father Vaughan was an, a uh, great preacher of a uh, generation or more ago in England. And he was on top of London bus reading his breviary. And the breviary, as you know, is this prayer that we have to say every day. It's made up for the most part of... Uh, sacred scripture. It takes about an hour a day for us to read it. But Father Vaughan was reading his breviary up on top of the London bus. Someone came up and saw him and said, look at this. Here he is. The great Father Vaughan gets on top of the London bus, takes out his prayer book, and begins praying so that everybody can see him. He said, when I pray, I follow the injunction of scripture. I close the door, go into my closet, and pray alone to the Father. Father Vaughan says, men, get on top of the London bus and tell the world about it. Now, people not only can exaggerate what they do, and uh, like authors, for example, ever notice how authors have their picture taken, noticed in a magazine? The book is always cover out. You can see the title, you can see the author's name, you can see the publisher, you can see everything except the place where you can get it at a discount. <laughs> but there's also such a thing as underestimating, which is a form of pride. For example, uh, if a man who was six feet six said... Uh, when you said to him, I'm mire tall, he said, oh, no, really, I'm not. I'm only three feet six. That's not humility. Or the golfer, for example, who smashes his clubs and says, that's a rotten shot. By that he means, this is really not my normal game. I haven't been on a normal game for 30 years. <laughs> or, for example, if I should say, if you should come to me afterwards and say, that was a nice, uh, nice television show, if I should say, oh, it was nothing, I only spent three minutes preparing it, that is vanity. Because I'm implying, just think of what this show would be if I spent four minutes preparing it. <laughs> and then in addition to vanity, there's also the critical spirit. Uh, people who are very proud, egotistical, have many things wrong with them. First of all, their own pride, selfishness. Now, their conscience bothers them. 
And because their conscience bothers them, they're very unhappy. Instead of criticizing themselves, they project the criticism to others and become very critical, and nothing that anyone does from that point on can ever be right. And this critical spirit uh, always enjoys slander. Why is it that newspapers today uh, carry murder stories, adulteries, infidelities, disloyalties, and all that in the front page? It's news. Well, why? Well, simply because people, when they, when they read about a murder, when they read about a thief, they say, I'm not that bad, really. I'm pretty good. And so they establish comparisons and say, I'm much better than my neighbor. But as regards the, the critical spirit, I think everyone suffers from false criticism of others. But I believe that the very best consolation that could be given to anyone was one that Walter Winchell gave some years ago. Uh, he said, uh, remember that nobody will ever get ahead of you as long as he's kicking you in the seat of the pants. <laughs> it's a physical impossibility. And so we just simply have to, to bear with it. Uh, then there can also be, in addition to this, uh, to this critical spirit, uh, there can be a kind of um, sense of irresponsibility. People deny that they ever do anything wrong. That's pride. I heard some time ago of, of two social workers who were discussing a criminal. And uh, one of them said, well, I know certainly he committed murder. Certainly he robbed the bank and all that. But after all, remember, he was an orphan at 12. And the other social worker said, yes, but he shot his parents. <laughs> and the first social worker said, I know he did, but he did it in self-defense. Now, there are many other things that we were prepared to say about humility, but I wonder if anybody would ever be this humble. Suppose someone was shocked at the way dogs were treated and wanted to help dogs, to bring to them a kind of a superior intelligence. Do you think there's any human being in the world that would ever be willing, if he could, to throw off his body? And take his soul, his intellect, his will, his affections, his heart, his great loves, and put this spirit of his into a dog. Do you think anybody would ever be that humble? But imagine two more things. Suppose that when he did that, he would resolve, first of all, never to transcend the limitations of that dog organism. Though he had a mind that could scan the infinite, he would never speak, never say words, but would limit himself to a body. Though he was an artist, he would never use his paw to create. And then suppose, in addition to that, that he subjected himself always to the companionship of creatures likened to himself, to dogs, leading their lives, sharing their trials, just in an effort to help. 
I do not believe there's a single man in the world that would be humble enough to do that. But that gives us some all faint analogy of something else that happened. And the analogy holds just for humility, but does not hold for the whole truth. And then it only suggests, as I said, the dimmest outline humidity. Suppose now a god became man and put himself in a human organism and subjected himself to the limitations of the human organism. And though he was the word, but only used words, though he had an infinite mind, would nevertheless speak in parables so that dull, tardy intellects could understand and finally would subject himself to the companionship of other men. Slow intellects, dull, to grasp any great truth, and yet would be patient with them, would accept from them their abuses, their misunderstandings, their punishments, their cruelties, anything else. That indeed, would be humiliating. If you think that it would be humiliating for a human spirit to go into the organism of an animal, what do you think it would be like for an infinite God to ever go into the form of a man? To humble himself to the form of a servant. that humiliation that would make a feast great where the world thought of a babe in a manger. And that's the sort of thing, too, incidentally, that gives some meaning to the poem of Francis Thompson. Little Jesus Wast thou shy once? And just as small as I, and how did it feel like to be? Out of heaven and just like me. I should think that I would cry for my house all made of sky, and the twaking would distress me, not an angel there to dress me. Hast thou ever any toys, like us little girls and boys? And didst thou play with all the angels that were not too tall, with stars for marbles? Did the things play? Can you see me through their wings? And did thy mother let thee spoil thy robes by playing on our soil? How nice were them always new, cause in heaven it was quite clean. 
Did thy mother tonight kiss thee and fold thy closing tight? And didst thou feel quite good in bed? Thy prayer said, Oh, thou canst not have forgotten all, that it feels like to be small. Then take me by the hand and walk and listen to my Our sincere thanks to the Fulton J. Sheen Company, who has given us permission to share these broadcasts with you today. I invite you to make Bishop Sheen a part of your family audio and video collection. You can call them toll-free at 1-866-357-4336 or visit the official website for purchasing Catholic Family Videos and DVDs of Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen's recordings from the Catholic television series, Life is Worth Living. The web address is www.bishopsheen.com. You will find rare collections of Catholic family video recordings addressing a variety of topics such as morality, Mary the Mother of God, angels, Catholic Holy Days, and other faith-based subjects. So call toll-free today, 1-866-357-4336. Again, 1-866-357-4336. And on the web, www.bishopsheen.com. And on behalf of Bishop Sheen, God love you. You are listening to Radio Maria Canada. We now continue with the program, Your Life is Worth Living, hosted by Al Smith. Hello, Radio Maria family, and welcome to another edition of Your Life is Worth Living. I'm your host, Al Smith, and I want to thank you for joining me for this opportunity to learn our faith together. Uh, This catechism series we've been sharing for a number of weeks now uh, has uh, been building upon itself as uh, each lesson uh, puts together another piece of the puzzle uh, to understand the mysteries of the Catholic faith. Sometimes uh, it takes years and years and years. Uh, I remember uh, Pope Benedict the Sixteenth, our good uh, Pope Emeritus, he mentioned that he's still learning uh, the faith even at his ripe old age. And, um, of course, I don't think you ever will see all the treasure Uh, that is contained in the faith. And so uh, we're just going to unpackage one of the little treasures today. And so we're on lesson number 30, and it's entitled The Mass. And so now I'll let uh, the Venerable Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen guide us in this catechism lesson. Peace be to you. A great American patriot once said that he regretted he had only one life to give for his country. He meant that his love was greater than his sacrifice. 
that his life could be given only once in time and therefore could not be repeated. It is very different with the life of our Lord. Though the life was given once, it is eternally given. And it is eternally given and repeated in the sacrifice of the Mass. In this lesson, we are going to describe the Mass in terms of three of its principal parts. The offertory, the consecration, the communion. First, the offertory. This takes place when the priest offers bread and wine to God. Our blessed Lord, at that moment, if we may draw an image, is looking out from heaven saying, I cannot die again in the human nature that I took from Mary. That human nature is now glorified at the right hand of the Father, the pledge and the promise of what your human nature is to be. But I can die in you and you can die in me. Will you therefore offer yourselves to me? I can add nothing to the sacrifice of my love except by and through you. Now we begin to offer ourselves to him under the species of bread and wine. Let me tell you how this was done in the early church. If you would have come to Mass in the early church, you would have brought some bread and wine. You also might have brought some linen, fruits, wheat, oil, wool, and other things that were needed by the religious community, that is, by the church. The priest would have taken all of these gifts, piled them up at the side of the communion rail, to distribute them to the poor after Mass. But the bread and wine which was brought, he would take some of that and use that for the offertory of the Mass. Now we no longer bring either bread and wine, nor do we bring these other things, simply because today we live in a modern world where money is the medium of exchange. Instead of bringing bread and wine, we bring that which equivalently buys bread and wine. The important thing is that when we offer ourselves to God, we do so under the appearances of bread and wine. Why did our blessed Lord use bread and wine as the symbols of our offertory? I can immediately think of three reasons. First, in order to signify our unity with one another and in him in the mystical body of Christ. Just as a unity of grains of wheat make bread, and just as wine is made up from many grapes, so too we who are many are one in Christ. That is the first reason. Another reason is, perhaps no two substances in nature traditionally have so much nourished man as bread and wine. Bread is 
the marrow of the earth. Wine, its very blood. In bringing bread and wine, therefore, we are bringing those substances which have most nourished ourselves, given us life. Therefore, we are equivalently offering our lives or ourselves on the altar. A third reason, wheat and grapes have to suffer a great deal in order to become bread and wine. Wheat has to pass through a winter, and then it has to be subjected to a mill and to fire before the wheat can ever become bread. Grapes, in their turn, have to pass through the Gethsemane of a wine press before they can become wine. So too we who offer ourselves to Christ are destined to sacrifice. Therefore let us take those substances from nature which have given us life but which indicate in their very being the need of sacrificing and suffering in order to be united with Christ himself. We therefore at the moment of the offertory of the Mass are not passive spectators as we might be in the theater. We are going to be actors in a great drama. We are standing, as it were, on the pattern that the priest is offering. We are in that chalice. We are participants. We are co-offerers to Christ, through him to the Heavenly Father. If therefore we understand the offertory, we realize now that we have offered ourselves. That brings us to the question, what happens to us? The answer to that is given in the consecration. The priest, it will be recalled, is only the instrument of Christ himself at the altar. That Christ is the priest, Christ is the victim. When therefore the priest pronounces the words of consecration, he is only giving, loaning to our blessed Lord his voice and his hands. At the moment of consecration, the priest says over the bread, This is my body. And over the chalice of wine, this is my blood. At that moment, there takes place what is known as the mystery of transubstantiation. Trans means across. Substantiation refers to substance. This mystery means that the whole substance of the bread becomes the whole substance of the body of Christ. The whole substance of the wine becomes the whole substance of the blood of Christ. Notice we use the word substance. Now just as a subject has predicate, just as your personality wears clothes which are purely accidental to your personality because you can change clothes, 
so too bread and wine have what are known as accidents or appearances or predicates or species. Now, after the moment of consecration, the bread looks the same as it did before. The wine looks the same. That is to say, the sensible appearances do not change, but the substance of the bread changes. The substance of the wine changes into the body and blood of Christ. How do we know they change? Because our Lord said so. Is there any better reason in the world? Our blessed Lord said, This is my body. This is my blood. We believe. The next question is, Very well, we have offered ourselves with Christ. And the consecration is a repeating, a bringing up to date, localizing, a representation of the death of Christ. How is the death of Christ represented in the consecration? Well, notice that the priest does not consecrate the bread and wine together. He does not say, this is the body and blood of Christ. First he consecrates the bread, then he separately consecrates the wine. First, this is my body, then this is my blood. Now notice that that separate consecration is a kind of cleavage, a tearing asunder, a kind of a mystical sword that divides the blood from the body of Christ and that is how he died on Calvary. That is why the Mass is called the unbloody sacrifice of Calvary, while Calvary itself was a real separation of blood from body. Not that this is any less real, but that it is not as sensibly presented as it was on the cross. But this is not the whole story of the consecration. Remember we offered ourselves under bread and wine? See what has happened to the bread and wine? It's the body and blood of Christ. But Christ is not alone in the Mass. We are with him. What therefore happened to us? We died with Christ. The words of consecration, therefore, have a secondary meaning. The primary meaning is very clear, that we've given. This is the body and blood of Christ. Mystically divided by that separate consecration of the bread and wine, our Lord renews the sacrifice of Calvary. The vine sacrificed himself on the cross. The vine and branches, which we are, now sacrifice themselves in the Mass. So the secondary meaning of the words of consecration is about the branches united to the vine. So we say to our Lord, really, this 
is my body. This is my blood. All that I am. My body, my blood, my intellect, my will, all of my desires, intentions and motivations, all that I am substantially are now thine. I die with thee, divinize them, transubstantiate them, change them, so that I am no longer mine but thine. Oh, the species of my life, the mere accidents, what I do in life, my peculiar duties, let them remain. They are only the appearances, but what I am in my essential relationships to thee, that make divine. I die with thee, O Christ, on count. That is the consecration. Now we come to the communion. Remember that in the offertory, we were like lambs that were being led on to Jerusalem. And in the consecration, we are those lambs who are offered in sacrifice. Now in communion, we find that actually we did not lose anything at all. We did not die. We recovered life. We die to the lower part of ourselves in the consecration of the Mass, and we get back our souls ennobled and enriched. We begin to be free and exalted. We find that our death was no more permanent than the consecration than was the death of Christ on Calvary. In Holy Communion, we surrender our humanity, we get back his divinity. We give up time, he gives us his eternity. We give up our sin, we die to it, he gives us his grace. We surrender our self-will and receive the divine will. We give up petty loves. He gives us the very flame of love itself. That is communion. Now, because communion is so very important, we want to dwell on three particular aspects of Holy Communion. First, Holy Communion incorporates us to the life of Christ. Two, Holy Communion incorporates us to the death of Christ. Three, Holy Communion incorporates us to the members of the mystical body and their joys and sorrows. First, in Communion, we have unity with the life of Christ. That is to say, the whole Christ. Christ born in Bethlehem, the Christ who lived in Galilee, who taught, who suffered, died, rose from the dead, is at the right hand of the Father, and is infusing his life into his mystical body. We receive that divine life in communion. Our blessed Lord said, He that eateth me, the same shall live by me. Actually, we do not so much receive him. As strictly speaking, he receives us. 
we become incorporated to him. There's a kind of a transfusion, just in the physical order, as there is transfusion of blood or life, so to here there's a tremendous transfusion of divine life into our souls in communion. And that is why at communion we always have such a deep sense of unworthiness. And the communion prayer is Domine non sum dignus. O Lord, I am not worthy. Is it not true that in human love, the beloved is always on the pedestal, the lover always on his knees? And so in divine love, we protest our unworthiness as we go to the communion rail to receive the divine life because we died to our lower life in the consecration. The divine lover invites us to his banquet. We poor, destitute creatures. He holds us in his embrace. Really, if our faith were strong, we would crawl on our hands and knees to the communion rail. And apropos of that life, our Lord said, He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood lives continually in me and I live continually in him. Secondly, communion is not only incorporation to the life of Christ, it is also incorporation to the death of Christ. Here is something that we very seldom think of. We always think of communion as a relationship of life, but as a relationship of death. St. Paul wrote to the Corinthians, It is the Lord's death you are heralding whenever you eat of this bread and drink of this cup. Why is there a death involved? Simply because we have not yet passed into glory. We have our old Adam with us. All of our sins, all of our concupiscences, our prides and covetousness and avarice. And we have to die to all of these. As the consecration itself suggested, when the farmer plows corn, he's very interested in life. But he's uprooting weeds, is he not? In other words, the condition of having the life of the corn is to bring death to the weeds. And the condition of having life of Christ is to bring death to the old Adam? Does not the gardener, when he nourishes the flower and cares for it, battle against insects? And in order to protect this divine life, we too have to bring some kind of penance and self-denial to that which is lower. Furthermore, if our Lord died for us, then we have to die to ourselves. And notice that after the resurrection... It was the relics of his passion and his death that he showed men. Mary Magdalene wanted to achieve that glory of the resurrection, and our Lord said, Do not touch me. But he said to Thomas, Touch my hand. Put thy finger into my hand. Put thy hand 
into my side. In other words, Thomas, you may commune with my death to see that I am the risen life. I believe that is the reason why the church ordains fasting before communion. In order to be sure that at least we will be incorporated in some tiny little way to the death of Christ before we receive his life. The third point concerning communion is that communion is not only incorporation to the life of Christ, incorporation to his death, but it is also communion with all of the other members of the mystical body of Christ. This is what we forget. That when we receive communion, we are being united with every other member of the church throughout the world. Your body, for example, is made up of millions and millions of cells. These cells are nourished by blood plasma or lymph. It courses through all the gates and alleys of your body to nourish and repair. It knocks at the door of each individual cell. It offers its treasure. Now what that blood plasma does to your human body is a faint, far-off echo of what our Lord does for his mystical body. The mystical body is made up of persons, not cells. Instead of human, human nourishment, there is the divine life of the Eucharist. And this Eucharist is the divine lymph, as it were, of all of the cells or persons of the mystical body of Christ. And as St. Paul says, the one bread makes us one body, though we be many in number, the same bread is shared by all. The lymph makes the body one, the Eucharist makes the church one. The communion rail is therefore the most democratic institution in the face of all history. We are communing, therefore, at the rail, not only with every member of the church, but with the joys of the church wherever they are in any part of the world, and also with the sorrows of the church, the trials and persecutions, for example, in mission lands. Therefore, every communion will make us more and more conscious of helping the society of the propagation of the faith in order that this body of Christ may grow and in order that we may be more conscious of our communion one with another in the body of Christ. That is the Mass. And thanks to it, we have the real presence. Our Lord is on the altar. Think of what our churches would be if we did not have that red tabernacle lamp telling us that our blessed Lord was there in his Eucharistic presence. We would just be meeting houses, prayer halls, that's all. We would almost feel that we were standing alongside of the empty tomb of Easter morn and an angel were there saying, he is not here. But thanks to the real presence of our Lord in our churches, the Eucharist is the window between heaven and earth. Thanks to the real presence, we look out to heaven. And heaven looks down to us. That is why we can pray better there. We are praying before our Lord. Our Lord is just as really and truly present in the blessed sacrament as I am present before this microphone as I speak to you. 
Though the manner of presence is different, but it is the Christ, our Savior, our Redeemer, our love. God love you. You are listening to Radio Maria Canada. We now continue with the program, Your Life is Worth Living, hosted by Al Smith. Hello, Radio Maria family, and welcome once again to uh, the end of this hour of uh, sharing uh, this wit and wisdom of the Venerable Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen. Uh, I want to thank my good friend Anthony at uh, FultonSheen.com. Now, FultonSheen.com is a website that, uh, I guess, uh, features... uh, I want to say hundreds of recordings from the Venerable Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen. Uh, Anthony is a pioneer in that he remastered all the old crackly uh, recordings and uh, made them very clear as best he could. And so he's been sharing them all over the world, of course, through his website. And uh, he offers the free uh, downloadable Bishop Sheen app for your cell phone uh, so that you can uh, take some Bishop Sheen wisdom with you. Uh, and people will then download it onto their uh, iPads and all their d- different devices, their computers. Uh, so I would strongly recommend that you visit that site. Again, it's www.fultonsheen.com. And there you'll see all the different instructions of how to download and go from there. And, of course, uh, these uh, recordings we've been sharing uh, since we went onto the air with Radio Maria Canada. Again, our thanks to Anthony because, again, without his good quality recordings, I think we'd be a little bit frustrated as we listen. So uh, again, thank you again, Anthony, for your good work. And let us please support his ministry uh, by visiting his website, www.fultonsheen.com. And of course, we want uh, your help, of course, financially here at Radio Maria Canada. Uh, We are a listener-supported apostolate. Uh, We have bills just like you. The heat hydro bill comes in every month, and so we want to keep the lights on and, of course, keep the frequency going out over the heiress. And so uh, we'd ask you to be as generous as you can. And uh, please pray for the many volunteers uh, here at Radio Maria that uh, God will continue to bless us with good health and, uh, I guess, a zeal for the mission, I'd like to say. And so until next time, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May our good Lord let his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord look upon you kindly and bring you peace. You have been listening to Your Life is Worth Living, hosted by Al Smith, here on Radio Maria Canada.